I'm going to read Hebrews 4, verses 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I hope you enjoyed your Christmas. I certainly did. Um, It was our first Christmas with our daughter Addison and um, many special moments. Um, And I struggled uh, in anticipation of Christmas to think about how I could help lead my family in... um, remembering the birth story and, and not making it all about um, the fun toys and clothes we were getting Addison. Um, and I think the song we sang just now, um, uh, it comes from Mary's words in Luke 1, um, where she says, He who is mighty has done a great thing. Holy is his name. And Kevin read that second verse. I didn't know he was going to reread that, but I, I'll also share what I've written. Oh, the freedom our Savior won. The yoke of sin has been broken. Once a slave, now by grace, no more condemnation. Uh, In short, I I could say that the Christmas story is the most captivating story that I've ever heard. It's the story of the divine taking on humanity. It's the story of the creator of the universe, God, becoming a baby. Um, That's amazing. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews focuses his entire book about. Um, He's a preacher who preaches this sermon, and it's really, it's all about Christmas. It's about Jesus. He explains over and over and over again that the only way that we're to experience salvation rest is in Jesus. And so you may still be undecided about Jesus, 
Um, whether you've been to church a lot or have only come a couple times, we welcome you, and I'm genuinely glad that you're here this morning. Um, and my hope for you is that you would be more and more and more convinced that Jesus is worth following. He's so, so good. And in fact, that's the very burden of the author of Hebrews. Our passage this morning gets at this central idea that we experience this promised rest as we hold fast to Jesus. But you know what? If you've been walking with Jesus for six months or six years or six decades even, you know that sometimes it's very hard to hold fast. You know it's sometimes impossibly hard to hold fast. It it feels impossible when your child struggles with a learning delay or when your husband loses his job, when your fiancé gives the ring back. I had a friend who experienced that very thing too, actually. When your wife dies, when your niece is diagnosed with cancer, when you have a hidden sin that's exposed by a friend, when you experience a lot of conflict in your marriage like I struggled with this fall, when you realize that you struggle with anxiety and depression, when you realize that you're maybe even addicted to pornography, when you know that you should be spending more time in God's word, but you don't, when you feel like you should be further along in your walk with the Lord, but you aren't, when you feel like you should be better, but you're not, where will you turn? Will you turn inward? Will you turn outward to someone else? Will you look for an experience? In short, our call is to hold fast to Christ. But the tension that I want us to feel this morning and that I think the passage answers is this. How in the world are we going to do that? How in the world are we supposed to hold fast to Christ? And so if you're taking notes, this is the hope-filled message in summary of of what this whole sermon is going to be about. It's this. Our only hope for holding fast is a perfect priest who helps us when we seek him. Our only hope for holding fast is a perfect priest who helps us when we seek him. I'm just going to have three simple points. The first is this. Only Jesus is a perfect priest. Only Jesus is a perfect priest. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, if you would open there and follow along. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. What is our confession? Well, if you were to summarize it in a word, it'd probably be this, Jesus. But why hold fast to our confession? Okay, well, maybe you would add a second word, only Jesus. Only Jesus. It's because we have a great high priest, verse 14. And why would we even need a priest? Under the old covenant, under the old law, the Levites were called by God to be priests for the people. Aaron was the first high priest and his descendants followed. 
with the Levites helping them with their priestly duties. And and what do the priests do? Well, it seems that that's the very question that our author has in mind. Look at 5.1 and following. For every priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. And because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So the role and the responsibility of a high priest would be that they are, first of all, chosen by God. Verse 1 says they're chosen, and again, that they are appointed. And in verse 4, it says that they're called by God. And what are they called to do? Well, they're called to bring gifts and sacrifices for sin. And and a a short little survey of the beginning chapters of Leviticus, you you get into Leviticus 1 through 7, which I know is really hard to read through if you're trying to do Bible in a year. Um, You'll read about the burnt offering and the grain offering and the peace offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering. And there's all this work that priests had to do day after day and year after year. And it also says that they were able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Now, why would that be? I think it's very important. It's very key to understand that it's because they had a shared humanity, right? Because the high priest was also a human and shared that humanity and shared in the weaknesses of the the other humans that he represented. That enabled him to deal gently. But here's a key observation about the old law. The sacrificial system was simply a provisional system. It was a temporary system. Why? Two reasons. One, because the priests were imperfect. They had imperfect obedience. You can see that in verse 3. Because of this, he, the high priest, is obligated to offer sacrifices for who? For his own Sins, just as he does for the people. So first of all, you have imperfect priests, imperfect obedience. And then secondly, you have only a temporary cleansing. It's never enough. It goes on day after day and year after year. And it's never enough. So what about Jesus? So the preacher is explaining to us what a priest does. And he says, every human high priest does this and this and this. Well, what about Jesus? Look at verse 5. And notice the key phrase, so also. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed. This so also we see three times, essentially, I'm going to work it out three different ways. For as every high priest was chosen from among men that they are appointed, so also Jesus is appointed. And for as every high priest chosen from among men is to act on behalf of men in relation to God, so also is Jesus. The analogy continues. And as every high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, so also does Jesus. But 
Not in the same way. Not in the same way. I'll get into that in a moment. Verse 5 specifically nails this and says, Jesus did not exalt himself to be made high priest. It wasn't something to be seized. It was something to be received. It was given by God. It was not a right. It was a responsibility. It was a calling from God. And Jesus humbly responded, perfectly submitted to that call. We see this in Philippians 2, where it says, Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. So whereas a human high priest is called to go from one human status to another human status, Jesus was appointed to leave heaven as the son of God, And he was appointed to this new task, this new role, this new duty, and he submitted perfectly. Matthew 20, 28 says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came in all humility. Though he could have come as a conquering king, Jesus came as a baby in a manger. And the author of Hebrews continues to develop this thought about the the humility and submission of Jesus under the appointment of God when he quotes two prophetic psalms about the promised Messiah. The first is from Psalm 2. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. He's not saying that on this day he became a son, but that God declares Jesus' appointed role as the redeeming son of God. And then he draws from Psalm 110, another prophetic psalm, where it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek's actually the first priest we learn about in the Bible. Um, He ministered to Abram in Genesis 14. He's a foreshadowing of our great high priest. Now, who is it that's saying that you will be a priest forever, Jesus, according to the order of Melchizedek? Well, it's God. And so what he's doing is just like in Psalm 2, we see that Jesus is being identified, acknowledged, appointed, designated by God as a high priest. And he's going to be a great high priest, a perfect high priest because of his perfect, perfect, perfect obedience. Josh Kruger preached a heck of a sermon last week on why we need Jesus. We have a desperate sin issue, and Jesus meets our greatest need. Through the old Adam brought sin and death, the new Adam brought life and righteousness. Because Jesus is our perfect priest, we have complete confidence in the eternal blood-bought, oath-sealed promise that we are forgiven and made new. Because ultimately, while Jesus was like the human priest in a whole lot of ways, there's a whole lot of ways Jesus wasn't like them. For example, he was perfectly submitted to the will of God. He had all the rights and privileges of being the son of God, but he gave those up to serve. 
All the previous high priests had failed to submit perfectly, to obey perfectly, to serve perfectly, but not so Jesus. How do we know this? Well, we read that in verse 2 that the high priests were beset with weakness. Jesus was not beset with weakness. He overcame weakness and temptation in order to be our perfect priest. And, and, you know, and somehow we get this idea that, that Jesus is simply like a doorway or an entryway on the path of salvation. And that all we have to do is open the door, walk through, and we're going to get there. We fail to see him as the good shepherd. We fail to see him as the faithful friend. We fail to see that he's the one who helps us every step of the way. The one who punches our ticket to eternal life is also the conductor of the train. Or as the Valley of Vision uh, prayer said, that he is the pilot at the helm. He's the one that's going to get us there. He's faithful and he's merciful. And so this is our hope. Not only one, that only Jesus is a perfect priest, but that two, only Jesus is a sympathetic savior. Not only is Jesus a perfect priest, but he is a sympathetic savior. Look at verse 15 of chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. There's something different about this high priest. He doesn't just reluctantly fulfill his duties. There's something deeply personal going on here. It says that he sympathizes with us, or another translation says that he empathizes with us. Think of John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He knows us. He experienced life with us. We do not have a high priest who is unable to relate to us, to sympathize with us, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. After his baptism, what happened to Jesus? What began his ministry on earth? Well, he was led into the wilderness for his temptation for 40 days. And Satan threw everything at him. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And every single time, Jesus responded in faith, believing God's word to be true. Now, some of you might be thinking, how in the world could Jesus possibly understand my temptations? He was God. He, he, was, he was a God-man. How could he possibly understand how one little slip-up can lead to tragedy? How one little slip-up could lead to addiction? How could he possibly know what it's like to say no to sin after I've said yes to sin for so long. Well, did Jesus ever say yes to sin? No. But was he tempted in every way like we are? Yes. Over and over and over again. You know what? He actually 
had it worse than you. (laughs) Not only was he tempted and then tempted again and tempted again, and then you know what we do? We cave. We give in to sin. And so we actually never experience the full weight of that against us of temptation after temptation after temptation because we just, we cave, we give in. Jesus never caved in. He experienced the full weight of that temptation. And this is kind of looking ahead. But the beauty of the gospel is that he also bore the full weight of the guilt of every time that he didn't give in, that we did give in. Jesus is the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. He chose to endure that. Isn't that something? That Jesus, God himself, can relate to us as humans. That he became like us. That he is with us. That he understands us. That he gets us. Even when no one else does. God does. And guess what? He helps us. He helps us with our weaknesses. And what's the implication of that verse? The implication is we are weak. (laughs) We are beset with weaknesses ourselves. And we need grace. We need help. We struggle. We struggle to fight against sin and to trust God. We struggle to obey. And quite frankly, oftentimes we struggle even to struggle. Right? We don't even put up a fight. It's here, in that moment, when you're struggling, that there is great hope for you. Consider the final verses of this passage in verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 